you did not read your bulletin cover this morning because you're still here. Who would want to hear a message about government? Let's talk politics. There's still time to still time to leave. So why are we talking about that today? Good as a subject as any. But actually, we've been, uh, we had been in, going through the book of Romans for several months, and uh, we took a break to cover some other things, and now we're getting back into it. And Paul happens to be there in chapter 13 this morning. So the question is, why is Paul talking about the Apostle Paul? Why is he talking about it at this point? Because back in chapter 12, verse 1, um, where we've been for from that point forward, we, we covered several weeks, where he's talking about how do we live our lives fully dedicated to God, uh, as our spiritual service of worship. And so how does this connect with that? How does this relate to his dec- declaration that we should offer our whole lives to God as living sacrifice? Well, it must be because Paul believes that how we relate to government is a, is a part of our dedication to God. How we relate to government is part of our dedication to God, dedicating our lives to God. Some of you care a lot about issues concerning the government and politics. Some of you, not so much. So we, got, we probably have a mixed group here this morning in terms of interest. Some of us are cynical, um, doubtful that any good thing can really happen no matter who we get in office. We don't really get a lot of good coming out of it, it seems. God must consider how we relate to government important enough to where he inspired the Apostle Paul to to write about it. So it's important. How we relate to government is important. And it seems that more than ever as a nation, we're more divided on political and social issues. More than ever. So how do we relate to government as Christians? And how does this relate to how Christians should live as citizens in this culture? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. These are your people. Through your Holy Spirit, help us to grasp the importance of this word you've given us about how we relate to government. Teach us. Help me to not speak anything unhelpful to be clear and, and to be what you want us to hear. Open up our hearts this morning to the glory of Christ above all. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we'll read the text that Paul um, has for us here in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governmental governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only 
to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is, is owed. These are the words of God. So how does Paul say Christians, a Christian is to relate to governing authorities? Well, he says be subject to them, submit to them. Dedication to God doesn't excuse you from submitting to governing authorities. In fact, Paul says there is no authority except from God. And to make sure we get his point, he restates it even more emphatically. Those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. They have been appointed by God. They've been ordained or put in place by God. Whether through dictatorship or by democracy, they're there by God. When Pilate told Jesus that he had authority to free him or to crucify him, Jesus answered and said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So incredibly, Pilate had a delegated authority from God over Jesus. And that led to his crucifixion. God had put in place the Caesars to rule over the Roman Empire, including Israel, his people. He has, he has appointed your favorite governing authorities, if you have any. And he's appointed the ones that you don't care for. So what about bad rulers? Well, we saw Pilate was put in place by God. He was given authority by God. So essentially all God has to work with are bad rulers. It's just a matter of, of degree. Some are less bad than others, thankfully. Um, and we'll talk some more about that. There's only one perfect ruler, and that's Jesus. And we're waiting for his kingship to be fully established. So Christians are not to be known for rebelling against governing authorities. They are to, they are to submit to them. They certainly shouldn't be lawbreakers or anarchists. You know what an anarchist is? Anybody here an anarchist? You're against all rule. Get, get rid of all government. Just trash it. He continues talking about this in verse 2. He says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. If you resist the authorities, you resist what God has appointed. You're rebelling against what God has ordained. You're opposing what God has decreed. If you resist the God-appointed authorities, you will receive judgment, he says. Now, some interpret this as God's judgment, and as far as God uses human judgment, which he does, to carry out his judgments in this age, in this world, it is from God. I don't think Paul's talking about God's final judgment, his ultimate judgment, necessarily, although all judgments by the government is a kind of preview of coming attractions. When you see the, the flashing lights go off in your rearview mirror, you freeze. You panic. So you feel, the, I'm caught. 
And that's a preview of how it's going to be if you're not covered by Jesus Christ in the final judgment. If you speed, you will be judged and have to pay a fine. If you hunt deer out of season, you have to pay a fine. My wife's grandfather hunted deer out of season, and he, he wrote a confession we found after he died. He used to sit outside, uh, sit looking out his window and, and shoot deer at his farm out of season. So thankfully he was covered by, he, had, he, he believed in Jesus. If you drive with, with expired tags, you pay a fine if you get caught. Assuming you don't do it on your own. Hey, I'm sorry, I've been driving with expired tags. Here you go. If you um, have your own internet server at home and you receive top secret government emails and you put your nation's security at risk, you run for president. I didn't say that. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. You don't need to fear being punished by rulers if your conduct is good, typically. If you're doing what is bad, be very afraid. Lame excuses don't normally avoid punishment, but sometimes they do, sadly. I hope that affluenza doesn't ever get someone off the hook again. Did you hear about that? Uh, Ethan Couch, teenager, drove drunk and killed four people. And he avoided imprisonment with an affluenza defense, meaning that he was raised with the idea that money would get you always avoid consequences, get you out of trouble. So his attorney said he had affluenza, and he didn't know right from wrong. And that worked for a while. If you don't want to fear a person in authority, do good. And you will receive his approval. Now, he will praise or commend you, Paul says. Uh, governing authorities don't often hand out awards for being good citizens. Sometimes they do, on some occasions. But typically not. And what you do receive are the benefits of their protection and services by being a law-abiding citizen. When I was in kindergarten, they graded on citizenship. Do they, do they still do that? Do they even use the word citizenship? Did anybody else get graded on citizenship? How'd you do, Jim? Okay. Moving on to, to verse 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, for he is God's servant for your good. And, and again, he says, if you do wrong, be afraid. So he's saying, don't do wrong, and if you do do wrong, be afraid. Paul continues explaining how the governing official does good for us if we do good. He is God's servant. God's servant. We get the word deacon from that. He's God's deacon for, for our good. God's purpose is that governing authorities do good for society. That's his purpose anyway. They can actually facilitate human flourishing. But if we do bad, we should be afraid. He keeps saying this. Because it is not for no purpose that he bears the sword. That's the triple negative. It is for a purpose he bears the sword. He doesn't have the authority to punish for no reason. There is a reason he has the authority to punish, because 
God's given him that authority. He has the authority up to and including capital punishment, the death penalty, to enforce the law. In having this authority, he is God's servant, he says it again, as an avenger, not Iron Man or Thor or Captain America avenger, but a punisher of, uh, for, for wrath of the one who does wrong. Now, in this translation, it says God's wrath, and the word God's is not in there. Uh, it just says he's, the ruler is an avenger for wrath. But the reason the translators translated it this way is because in the context, the governing official is ultimately carrying out God's judgment, God's punishment on the wrongdoer. So as God's servant through the means of imperfect justice, and that's all we get in this world until Jesus returns is imperfect justice, he is mediating a a small portion of God's just wrath, of God's punishment on the one who is doing bad things. People are so confused about why they get punished when they do bad things. God often used pagan nations to punish his people Israel for their sins and rejection of him. So God frequently uses bad people to bring his punishment about. Ultimately, the reason that we are not to avenge ourselves when wronged is because God will avenge wrongs with his wrath. That's what Paul wrote back in chapter 12, verse 19. In 12, 19, Paul said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Although God's wrath won't be poured out in full until Christ returns, His full punishment doesn't come until Jesus returns. He has made provision for applying some preliminary wrath in the present age through governing authorities. That is why believers are not to take their own vengeance. We're not to take the law in our own hands since God works through earthly authorities to carry out his wrath on people. Verse 5, he says, Therefore one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Paul reiterates we're to be in subjection to governing authorities. We must submit ourselves to the government. He says we are not only to do this to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. In other words, we are not to submit to government and laws just to avoid punishment. Say, that's the only reason I do that. Well, you're not supposed to do it just for that reason but because in our conscience we know that God has established these authorities and laws and we want to do it to please Him, to please God. So you obey traffic laws because you know in your conscience it honors God. You follow city ordinances because you want to please God. You run your business according to established laws and regulations to please God. You obey your HOA to please God. Yeah. And then in verse 6, he says, because of this, you also do our favorite thing. It's pay taxes. Paul gives this as a specific example of how we submit to authority, how we honor 
the authorities. We pay taxes because the governing authorities are ministers of God. Once again, he uses a servant word. This is often a word that is used in terms of priests and, and Levites in the Old Testament. And Paul uses it of, him, of himself as, 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 as a servant of God. Um, they attend to the ministry of governing. You are paying taxes to support the work of promoting good and restraining evil. Most importantly, you pay taxes in obedience to God. Pay your taxes as, as an act of worship. Yeah. In obedience to God. Now, now what he says in, in verse 7 is pay what you owe. So it's good to figure out what you actually owe. Don't pay less than that, but, but don't pay more than that. So there's ways of reducing your taxes that are legitimate. So pay to all what is owed them, all governing authorities, what you owe them. And we do owe it to them. The first word they use are direct taxes, direct taxes to whom they're owed. In Paul's day, this type of tax was, was paid by a subject nation, not by Roman citizens. The scribes and the Pharisees or, and chief priests tried to trap Jesus in a political uh, debate by asking, is it lawful to give tribute, this is the same word, this, this tax to Caesar or not? He answered, you know what he answered, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So today these would be like income taxes and, and uh, property taxes. Pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. These are like indirect taxes, like sales taxes and tolls. And then he says we owe respect to our governing officials and we owe them honor. So in obedience to God, pay your taxes and honor and respect your governing authorities. Yes, even him and her. The ones you don't think deserve honor and respect. Not that you have to like them. Just respect them. Taking this whole passage just as it is, it seems to be saying that Christians should do whatever governing leaders tell them to do. Is that what Paul intends? If there are exceptions, why doesn't he bring any up? Because he just says, just do it. After all, there are biblical examples of people disobeying the commands of governing authorities when they were contrary to God's will. So, for example, in the book of Acts, when Peter and John, the apostles, were told by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, not to preach in, in Jesus' name anymore, they said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. So they, they, they released him, and uh, they went right back to preaching. And uh, the uh, Sanhedrin said, hey, we told you not to do this. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. The believer's ultimate allegiance is to God. Wherever the demands of, of authorities or rulers clearly violate the higher allegiance, the Christian will act outside of the law. Remember the story of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt? Another example. Um, Pharaoh said to them, the king of Egypt said, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birth stool, 
If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So God honored them for not turning in, uh, not having the babies killed. Daniel and his three friends are also examples of serving ungodly rulers well. They served them well, yet not submitting to, to those rulers when they, what they require opposes obedience to God or opposes uncompromising devotion to God. And a couple post-biblical examples. In Nazi Germany, Christians and non-Christians alike, some of them hid Jews from the Nazis. Should they have submitted to the government and turned them over to the Nazis? Should Christians in countries where it's illegal to gather and, and, and meet reveal to government interrogators where the church is meeting and, and who is involved? Of course not. God wants us to stop evil from getting its, its way and deliver the oppressed to do justice and to love mercy. So where that goes against his will, you don't obey the government. Paul knows that God's people must obey him instead of governing authorities if the two contradict each other. So why does Paul give such an unqualified exhortation to submit to, to the government? Why doesn't he talk about exceptions? Well, I think it's because he wanted to emphasize that the church, the Christian movement, is not a political movement. It's not a political movement. It's not in league with government to bring in the kingdom of God. The church exists in every culture under any governmental system. And I think also he wanted to emphasize what his readers would too easily find exceptions to and what we're tempted to find exceptions to today by saying things like, or thinking things like, I'm not going to pay taxes because the government does all kinds of wrong things. Or I don't ha I have the right to do fill in the blank because I don't agree with the government's ways of doing things. Or I don't have to blank because the government is corrupt because other people don't do it as well. As far as we can, without disobeying God, we should submit to the government. Jesus Christ is our king. And no human authority is above him. That's why the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake. So for the sake of God's will and for his glory, be subject to every human government. Besides paying taxes and, and obeying other laws, how should we live as citizens in this country in ways that honor God and do good under our government system in our in our in this culture. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we we need to recognize, uh, according to uh, the New Testament, Christians are not first citizens of any human nation, but citizens of the kingdom of God. As Paul says in Philippians three twenty, our citizenship is in heaven. Christ's kingdom is already here in that Christ's people live, although imperfectly, live under his rule. So it's already, Christ's kingdom is already present because 
we are united to Christ and, and we're here. But it's not yet here in full that awaits his return. Churches, gatherings of Christians are, are like outposts, little outcroppings, little pre- precursors to God's kingdom coming in full. The Apostle Peter also says that the Christians are sojourners and exiles in, in this world. Christians are aliens and exiles in America. It's more obvious now than ever. America is where I sojourn. It's where I live. It's where I hang out. But I am an alien here. Living out my kingdom citizenship will look strange. That doesn't mean I go out of my way to look strange. It doesn't mean I... I, I look weird for the sake of looking weird, but we have much in common with with those who are not Christians, but we don't do good for the culture by not living distinctively as as citizens of Christ's kingdom, and that puts us out of sync with the culture. Our call is to an engaged alienation, an engaged alienation. In other words, a Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. We must not ignore our callings as citizens, but we must we also must not see our present earthly citizenship as the final word. We are Americans best when we are not Americans first. We're Americans best when we're not Americans first. Does this mean that we don't care about our, our nation? We don't participate in the democratic process or that we don't uh, seek to do good in, in, in for our culture? No, of course not. We should seek to serve our neighbors, our communities, our state, and our nation by the way we live, by the way we work, by the way we vote. We seek to promote the common good, what makes for human flourishing. Many are frustrated with our leaders. Have you noticed that? Be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't shoot your country in the foot by supporting candidates who are bound to be poor leaders. Don't just react to your frustrations with current leaders and not choose wisely in your voting. And we need God's mercy to have some good people to vote for. Many of the political divisions in our, in our nation have, have come down to this, competing visions of, of morality, especially sexual morality. A lot of the divisions today are based upon that and how it relates to the common good. People say, oh, you can't legislate morality. And we say, really? Almost every law is a legislation of morality. We have laws against child abuse, Spouse abuse, stealing, assault, rape, defrauding, identity theft, arson, polluting. All of our laws are based upon moral standards. The question is for the common good, which moral standards are healthier, which best make for human flourishing. 
A majority of young people today think recycling is worse than porn use. They would say it's worse to not recycle than it is to, to use porn. So there's differences in how we measure what is good in terms of morality. Uh, is that our purpose as Christians to influence morality? The modern missions movements uh, advance into India, so back in, in the 1800s, 1700s, was not about dealing with the injustice of infanticide, which was going on. It was not first and foremost to stop the, the burning of widows on, on the pyres of their deceased husbands, which was going on. The missionaries, William Carey and, and others, went to reach people with the gospel. But the gospel speaks to the issue of honoring life. And obedience to Jesus means turning from practices that are unjust and oppressive and murderous, even when those practices are part of the culture and are supported by law. So they did end up putting a stop to widow burning and infanticide, at least to some extent, in terms of laws. William Wilberforce, who was in the parliament, English parliament for decades, uh, fought for the um, stop of the slave trade. He was driven by the gospel, but he spent his life to stop the slave trade as well. As Christians, we believe God's moral standards, God's moral standards, as contained in the Bible, provide the best moral framework for human flourishing. However, Christians don't believe we advance the kingdom of God by getting laws passed that reflect God's moral standards. We, we, we don't think that we make people Christians by getting laws passed that reflect biblical morality. The kingdom of God is spreading in America and all the nations, among all the nations, through the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The crucified, resurrected, and returning king. We don't yet see everything subjected to him, but as people believe the good news of Jesus Christ, they're born into his kingdom, Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. If you are born again, you do see the kingdom of God because you become in it and of it. And you begin living as citizens of this kingdom within man's kingdom. Our end goal is not a Christian America. Our end goal is not a Christian America. Either of of the past or a hope for a future. Our end goal is the kingdom of Christ, made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. I love our country. When I had first been uh, traveled overseas in, in, in Asia and gone for two or three weeks, and I came back, and I just wanted to kiss the ground when I got here. I mean, I'm so grateful for, for what we have in, in America. I appreciate the freedoms we have. But the gospel and the kingdom of Christ are not for preserving a comfortable American culture. It is for saving and calling out from every nation and culture those who will obey Jesus. 
the church now has the opportunity to bear witness to, in a culture that does not even pretend to share our values. This is not a tragedy. Since we were never given a mission to promote values in the first place, but to speak instead of sin and of righteousness and judgment of Christ and his kingdom. So let's pray and vote for rulers who will uphold wise and just laws that promote human flourishing for the good of our nation, to keep keep it a free nation, a strong nation, because we are to, to pray and work for the good of our nation. Let's submit to them and honor them. But whatever happens, I say this with fear and trembling, whoever comes into office, let us live as those who have been sent into this culture in order to bless it with the gospel of the King Jesus. That's what we're here for. Let us do all the good we can as servants of Christ to display his goodness and justice doing good for our government and our fellow citizens. Father, we thank you for giving us the grace of Christ, rescuing us from our lawlessness, our rebellion against your authority, and the ways that we have rebelled against human authority, the ways that we've been proud about our own righteousness. Thank you, Father, that you gave us a righteous King, Jesus, who was willing to take on the form of a bondservant, a slave, and bear the punishment for our injustice, the wrath we deserve for not living under your rule, joyfully and obediently. Thank you that in him we have a mission to live for, we, we long for that day, Father, when, when there will be no more lawlessness, when there will be no more corruption, when there will be no more corrupt rulers or corrupt people. And we will joyfully be in your presence. No more sin, no more of sin's penalty, death. We long for your kingdom to come, Father. Oh, may your kingdom come in full. May we live as a kingdom people a salt, a preserving influence in our nation and in the nations wherever your people are, not gagging people in salt, but seasoning the world with the gospel and with your goodness. Help us, Father, to be wise in how we serve as neighbors and citizens and how we vote and how we, how we, um, how we obey the government when, when it is time to disobey the government. But may we live as a people who make it obvious that we're not counting on government to advance your cause. We're counting on the power of the Holy Spirit and your word to work in and through us to spread your kingdom. Father, help us to do that faithfully and to be good citizens for the good of this nation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.